wanting to do an episode on therapeutic day schools for a long time now. In fact, so much so that we're going to make it a two-parter. The first person that popped into my head was Sandra Spiker. She is the former teacher and principal of JCFS Therapeutic Day School. And the reason I know her is because my son went to that school for several years. JCFS stands for Jewish Children and Family Services. Once you hear her speak, you will understand why I view her as an expert and her dedication and passion come through so effortlessly. Hi, Sandra. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Welcome. Nice to welcome, meet you. Welcome to Behind Our Door. <laughs> nice Thank to you for you. having me behind the door. <laughs> yeah. We've wanted to do this topic for a very long time. I think therapeutic school, a lot of families have a lot of questions about it. What is it? How do we do it? How do we get into it? What does it look like? Does that mean my kid will be in it forever? Is it special ed? I mean, we can go on and on. But before we start that, um, we always like to know what the background is. What got you interested in even working at a therapeutic school? How did you end up there? Wow. It's a, it's something that I don't reflect on often. So thank you for asking that. Uh, kind of reroots me um, in the work. Um, so it's a couple it's a couple different ways I came to the work. Um, I had a brother who, you know, growing up in the '70s, started skipping school in the middle of middle school and um, self-medicating. Um, and there was probably mental health issues running in my family that nobody ever talked about, right? Um, and my brother was a lifelong substance abuser and probably too smart for his own good. Um, and uh, I always felt like, what if, what if someone had been able to reach him? What, what, what would have made the difference for him? Um, and then uh, in my senior year, uh, a childhood friend of mine committed suicide just before we were to graduate from high school. And I had a teacher that year that um, ran like a social emotional learning class, like my favorite class ever. <laughs> it was talking about feelings and knowing about yourself. And I was so thankful that in the time that my friend had taken her own life, that I had that teacher and that learning and those resources. And again, it made me think about, wow, this teacher really changed my life. Um, and uh, so I wanted to go into social work school, had uh, been accepted to college and university. And I had two uncles who were police officers in Detroit police force who talked me out of it. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be a female social worker. And I had another uncle who was in education. He's like, you can't be a social worker. You need to wait for someone to die to get one of those positions. So my idea that I was going to work with at-risk youth kind of went out the window. And uh, so I took another path and went to New York and studied fashion and did that and had great fun doing that. And I turned around one day, was like, this is so not rewarding. Um, so I thought I wanted to go into art therapy, went back to the Midwest and uh, just through some twists and turns, uh, started working at a uh, Chicago-based psychiatric rehabilitation program, um, doing some fundraising and development assistant. And they had a therapeutic school and those students would come over and help me with the mailings. And I was like, these are the kiddos I want to work with. Um, so I talked to some of the staff at that school and they're like, you should go into special ed. And I went into special ed as a second career, knowing I wanted to work in a therapeutic setting, a setting that most people don't even know exists. <laughs> but that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with those really complex youth. Um, the 
often are really misunderstood and kind of fall through the cracks. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, I think there's a lot of families out there that don't even know it exists. I remember struggling with my own son, and I had never heard of the word therapeutic school until he entered a, a different school, and he was about in seventh grade, and that's when a social worker approached me and said, have you ever considered putting him into a therapeutic school? And I said, what is that? So for our families listening, can you describe what a therapeutic school is, what it looks like? And also, when when did therapeutic schools start? When did they define that (laughs) that you need schools that are, you need to separate the communities a bit to have that this population, this demographic of needs helped? Yeah, so it's interesting. And again, I feel fortunate because therapeutic schools are more common in the Chicagoland area. Um, you know, I'm out of that area now and it's not really a thing. And um, that's interesting. So are you, I had, where are you, just, a smaller town or not? not yeah, specifically I'm, where yeah, you yeah I, I'm in um, Northern Indiana now. So smaller town, just not the same mentality. Those resources are not available. And mm-hmm. even when I was at the former school, there was a gentleman who had come out from the East coast to study the school and the model um, because he wanted to open a school like that out east. So um, they're called therapeutic day schools. And I think the difference is because um, there was the idea that before kids like that were sent to residential programs, right? So they left home and they went away where the day school is you stay at home and then you have this opportunity during the day. Um, a couple of them, and even the one that I was working at for a long time, um, the stories are is that they come out of... Um, orphanages possibly there was one that was on um, the upside of on the north side of Chicago too um it was in like this big old mansion and my understanding was it was a labor of love by this woman who was wealthy in in the neighborhood and she just brought in these students that were on the street um and kind of directionless and getting into trouble um and I Historically, I feel like they were places where those students were put and they were just kind of forgotten about. Um, And they weren't necessarily getting the best education. And even when I was doing student teaching, that was the case. Like it'd be a couple of kids sitting in a room with maybe a paraprofessional getting paperwork packets to work on, right? Um, And no expectation that they were ever going to go back to the regular schools. Like they were just put outside the public school system and housed there and um probably so they're not bothering the other kids and disrupting the teachers. That's right. Class. That's right. So and they that's, weren't getting met right. their needs weren't being met, the teachers and the other students' needs were being met. Right. And that's still a challenge in today's world. Yeah. Um, where yeah. those kiddos mm-hmm. who are disrupting the learning of others become the sore spots. So um that still is mm-hmm. an ongoing challenge. And the question is what do we do with that and how do we support those students? Putting them out of school and not giving them resources doesn't help them, right? Um, the trajectory of those lives. Um, yeah, become concerning. Um, so I, even when I first started at the school, I was at, um, the first year I was there, it was not an expectation that students would return back to the public school setting. And I remember when, as a teacher and being called into a staff meeting saying the districts are going to expect that we're going to start reintegrating the students. Many of us chuckled. I mean, that was just such a foreign concept to us at at that time, because that's just not what the mentality was. Um, and the mentality too wasn't that these students were have as strong as that education as the students in the public school, which is one of the things that why I left classroom and went into administration. It's like 
we can give them as close to a near school experience. And plus we're going to reintegrate them. So we have to help them be ready mm-hmm. to go back to a public school setting, right? You can't say, we're going to take you out and not give you any of the skill sets that mm-hmm. are the academic skill sets and then plop you back in public school and think you're going to be successful. So, um, and what makes a therapeutic school, I guess, because it, it does sound scary. <laughs> I can imagine. I imagine that parents, parents would feel intimidated thinking my my child has to go to a therapeutic school it just you know for those that are first getting exposed to there's something that could be more helpful for your son or daughter I can imagine that being yeah frightening in some ways I think we definitely saw the kind of the run the gamut of that there's some parents who have fought so hard for their students um their children and the child continues not to be successful or feel like the schools don't understand them right so for some parents, it feels like they fight forever to get to that placement where finally the child is going to get their needs met. And then some parents definitely are in denial. Like this is the fault of this principal and these teachers never understood my child. And so um, I think it's kind of both ends of the spectrum. And certainly even when parents maybe sometimes would come in for a tour, they'd have to leave. It would just be too much for them because they just still hadn't come to the kind of the acceptance and the realization that this is kind of the, the setting. But um, to also understand this isn't a life sentence, right? Like this is where a child comes to get intensive supports, right? Mm-hmm. And when they're ready, we'll, we look at moving them back into, you know, their home school or a public setting or a less restrictive setting, as we say in the world of special education. Right. So when you you talk about therapeutic, what is therapeutic about it? I know you said services, yeah. but more specifically, what services are offered at yeah. schools as opposed to a regular public school or even a Catholic school. Yep. So I think the first thing that when you walk into a, a therapeutic school, you're going to see small classrooms, right? um, maybe six, maybe eight students. Um, you can have up to 10 students and have probably be functional. It just depends on the students. So it's going to be a small classroom setting, small groups of students, always at least two adults. So one special ed certified teacher, and then one certified paraprofessional to support them. Uh, at also, I think it's extremely important and it varies per school, um, clinical support. Uh, so clinicians, social workers, um, a lot of these students come in with trauma, right? And we kind of have to get through that to get to um, helping the student be able to be in a classroom and be successful and learn. So um, intensive clinical supports. And again, that's something that maybe that's not very, that's not necessarily common in other areas. So I feel like that's one of the rich benefits um, of a therapeutic setting. Um, speech and OT should come along with that. Social emotional learning. I feel like the beauty of being in a therapeutic setting is not that's not academics are not a priority, but you really get to work on the social emotional piece of the students. I mean, you have I call it the ooey gooey stuff. It's the stuff I like to do. Uh, <laughs> it's like all the things that people maybe don't want to do or students are resistant to doing. Right. Um, and I feel like it's helping the students. Um, when we students come in with a lot of maladaptive behaviors, right? So, and we have to look at those behaviors as this has served a function for this child, whether it's kept them safe, it's met, they had gotten their needs met. When maybe that need is getting out of work because they don't know how to read, right? Whatever that is, we it's we have to figure out what's behind that behavior. So, um, we don't get to do any of that without first building a relationship with the student, right? So we have to have trusting relationships. Students have to feel like they're cared for, seen, heard, 
um, before they're going to open up to anybody. And so sometimes that's a really slow process. Um, some of our students have been in really traumatic situations in and out of group homes, in and out of foster homes. Um, and so it's building the relationship. And I always felt like as heavily staffed as the school was, it was just that allowed each student an opportunity to find their person. Because um, that's the most important thing. When that child's in crisis, when they're feeling unsafe, when they're starting to feel dysregulated, who can I go to? Who can I, even when I'm having my worst day, and I've had my worst behaviors, which have maybe kept people away from me before, that person's going to be like, nope, I'm still here, ready to talk when, you're, when you want to talk, right? So it's this, um, it's to me the therapeutic setting, like you see your children, the students, when they come in the door and you, and you know them, you know what kind of space they're in, what kind of day they're going to have. And I, in a public school setting, and I did spend some time in public school doing student teaching, and it just felt like I was just trying to keep all the fish in the school, like the school fish along, <laughs> keeping them all swimming together. And you didn't have time to really see like, this child is struggling and I really want to give them extra time. You don't have that luxury in a public school setting, even the, the best teachers. So the therapeutic set, setting really allows time and process for that. Um, well, I think you bring up a valid point that um, there's a big misconception about, and I think even I, I had it coming into therapeutic school with my own son, was that my thought was, okay, he's going to get like the best education ever, and you forget that you have to focus on the social, emotional, or um, I don't want to say behavioral because it's it's never behavioral. It obviously stems from something. That's right. But we have to address that first, or they can't. if they can't get past that, they can't learn. And so what I try to tell other parents is don't focus so much on the educational portion first. Let's get them safe and comfortable. Right. Right. No, that's so key. I mean, I know we even had some parents come in and their child was probably necessarily gifted. Right. Like, but, and they're like, well, the, the academic rigor isn't enough here, but the whole point is right now, the child's not getting out of bed. Right. <laughs> yes, we want them to have the academic rigor, but right now we also need to get them functional. Right. Um, and that's even hard for some of the teachers who really dedicate themselves to it, too. Like um, some really strong teachers, it might be like, he's my favorite student. I'm his best person. <laughs> right. And they come in and every morning they disrupt my classroom. And it's like because they know you're going to be that person. You're going to hear them. You're going to support them and you're going to get them through that moment and you're going to move them on. And then they can get to reading, right? So some of it's almost counterintuitive. People start to get into the work. Um, which, which, but, um, which, with some of this, when you just said, you know, back, back a few sentences about, you know, kids that don't get out of bed and all that, how with the parents that are listening that have kids young or high school or what, whatever age that have school refusal um, to get them, you know, it's one thing to be approved. Okay, they have to go to this therapeutic school, but. I know there are so many parents that struggle with that, of getting that person to the school. Is there some methodology or some way that therapeutic schools get these kids out of their house to school? Yeah, I mean, for for some, we've had a lot of great success stories. And there were some students that, you know, they ended up, you know, dropping from the school because the parent couldn't move them along. But a lot of that is anxiety and depression, typically, right? right? Mm -hmm. So, um and it's not to say that parents don't want to look at that, but um, one of the reasons I wanted to go into this field is because mental health is so misunderstood, right? And there's this stigma and shame about it and to understand that my child has mental health need. Um, and I would always want to say, like, if you if you 
you were told your child had diabetes or had cancer, you wouldn't be like, oh, they just have to push through it, right? <laughs> yeah, they just have to apply themselves more um, or they just haven't been trying the last couple of years. It's like, and, and that that really still bothers me that mental health, and it's probably getting better in today's world, but um, that piece, you can't, you can't move the child from that if you're not willing to look at the, the root cause of what's going on um, and why they're not getting out of bed and not wanting to be, you know, a teenager and be functional and come to school, right? And have social interactions. Um, so. And so do you involve the family in the therapeutic school? I was just going to ask that. Oh my God, the family is such an important component of doing the work. Um, and everything, the thing that I like about special education is that it's team-based, right? It, you, you need to have a team-based approach. Uh, the parent and guardian knows so much more about that student than, than you do, right? And I feel like the best thing about a team-based approach is that everybody has a, maybe have a different perspective or has a slightly different relationship with that child or works with them in different capacity. And sharing that knowledge is the greatest resource. It's the pool from which you which you can hopefully hopefully figure out the best way to help that child. Um, so the parents and guardians are, are critical um, like, in that and, process. And like you say, now with the therapeutic day schools, when these kids are going home, you know, every night to their home, that their parents understand the concepts and the approach that has been yeah. taken on their, their child. Yeah. Well, and the flip side of that is those students who live in really disruptive homes, mm -hmm. they come to school where they maybe have the most consistent six, seven, eight hours of their day and they go home and they're yeah. living through new traumas, right? So they come back into school. So you really have to look at each case so individually. Um, and, you know, for some of our parents and guardians, they have their own struggles, right? I mean, we will always try to involve the parents and guardians. Um, and it can be frustrating when you don't have a parent or guardian involved in the process, um, but you do have to recognize where they're at too. Um, and that's not uncommon. And especially when you think that mental health needs can be, you know, hereditary, genetic, you know, there's some, of course, argument that mental health needs rises out of poverty, whatever it is, you can't dismiss any one piece of the, of the factors, you know, that are playing into that child's condition and, and their well-being and trying to move them forward. Yeah, I can only speak for myself, and obviously my son went to the school that you were at, um, and he was so fortunate. We were fortunate to have found you that I really felt like it was such a supportive environment because I finally felt heard and not judged. I felt like every year through his grammar school years, I would walk in and say, hi, my name is Julie. I am, you know, my son's mother, and he is diagnosed with... And so these are the behaviors you will see, and I'm here and available if you would like to speak about that. And, you know, I would say not all of the time. We, I had some great teachers, um, but the school as a system, as a whole, you know, you could have one great teacher, but he needed more than that. Yeah, they don't have time. They have so many students in their class. Right. And, and they're not trained necessarily to recognize symptoms, signs and symptoms and behavior and, um, yeah. And there I was met with a team. How yeah. much, what, what age was, what grade was your son at therapeutic, at the therapeutic school? Seventh, seventh-ish, eighth grade. And mm -hmm. then um, we held him a little bit longer, which we can talk about later, about graduating. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, 
But by then he wanted to get out. He's like, I want to get out of here. Yep. So I would have loved to have held him longer, but it just was not going to work. So yeah. again, for the, the sake of those listening, you know, eagerly wanting to know all this information, does, does therapeutic schooling start at kindergarten? It pre, I mean, how early can you, uh, I know it takes a while for, for recognition of symptoms and parents to accept that there's an issue, but for teachers to recognize and say, this child needs more, yes. what's the earliest? Is it that? Is it kindergarten? Um, I mean, if there's extreme behaviors and they cannot be remedied, um, I mean, coming out of the area that I'm working now, we've got pre, we've got pre-K students with pretty extreme behaviors. And when you think about, it's, it's kind of hard to tease away what COVID did or did not do for the, the young mm-hmm. ones, right? Um, that really hinder their, um, their social skill development in some way. So um, it can be any grade. When I first entered the field, I would say if we got a second grader referred to the school, we would have been like, oh my goodness, this must be a really challenging case. Um, by the time I left there, kindergartners were coming in for sure. Um, the, the complexity of the needs of the children in the time that I've been in the field are, are increasing. And I actually just had this conversation with a couple of people about special ed used to be about like, oh, learning challenges and behavior maybe. But mm-hmm. now in today's world, special ed seems to just encapsulate this like behavioral challenge, right? And learning needs are, you know, sit with with the behavior a lot of times. Um, they're not necessarily separate from one from Great the other. progress. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but yes, I mean, and I think, again, probably just depending where people are at, um, you know, regionally, geographically, like they'd have to know what resources are in their, are in their area. Um, and I really appreciate the fact that the that Chicagoland has those, it has these schools and the districts outplaced to them, right? Because the district, the IEP team comes together and determines this is the level of intensity that this child needs right now. Um, and it, it really should be a team decision. I know sometimes it may not feel that way um, when a parent is not necessarily in agreement with it. But um, part of it for me is you don't want to move a child too quickly to a, such a restrictive setting. But at the same time, if their needs are going on that or these maladaptive behaviors are just going on and on, you're just reinforcing things that you're going to have to undo later, if you will. Um, so you have to like, what's the pros and cons of um like a public school setting with more resources or a therapeutic setting. Um, So it it can't be an easy decision, but it is an IEP team decision. Um, So if parents or guardians are struggling and their little ones are having really extreme behaviors, it's worth going to your school principal or, you know, district special ed director and um, talking to them about what are the options. I've seen so often in um, facilitating support groups and taking calls from parents that are struggling with their kids, um, there's such an issue with the gray area of when you keep saying extreme behavior, you know, real issues that are obvious, obviously not getting met in the regular school system. Um, there are parents that are seeing at home, I'm having all these problems, the grades are not coming in and have trouble fighting for the um, entrance and the, you know, the approval of their child going to a therapeutic school. Have you come into that situation often? Yes. I mean, some families, and if they have resources, they end up getting an advocate or an attorney, right? Yeah, right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
and I and I guess for me, it, like I said, it can't be an easy decision, but it should be a team discussion about well, what do we have. I always felt like you know, the Felix the cat, you know, his magic bag of tricks. <laughs> it's like, what else do we have in our bag of tricks left to support this child? So even if the public school is asking themselves that. However, if safety is an issue, right? If it's if it's safety for that child or safety for others, uh, a lot of little ones I've seen like they they go fight or flight mode and they flee. So they're eloping, right? Really unsafe. Public schools really can't manage that. Um, some schools might try to give a child a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, again, that's different regionally. I, I have learned like some districts do not even say such a word as a one-on-one -on -one or a dedicated paraprofessional. You know, it's more like increased um, supportive services. Um, but you have to kind of make sure that you've exhausted everything I feel before you would even move to that discussion Un unless again um, safety is an extreme issue you know there were some kiddos that came into my former school and um, let's say they were maybe third or fourth grade at that um, and they didn't even know how to be a, a citizen in the classroom because then when I learned their stories is that their behaviors were so extreme. They just got to sit in the principal's office or the dean's office or a social worker's office and be on a computer all day. Like it's no, like you can't even blame the child for the fact that they don't know how to be in a classroom and function and follow directions or just be a good citizen, as I like to say, in a classroom um, because yeah, the opportunity was taken away from them. Mm -hmm. You know, put them in a, cl a closet with a computer all day is not what we should be doing to our it's students. Carrying down their self-esteem right yeah. from the beginning. And, and essentially that's what was happening with my son. He was um, hanging out in the social worker's office or hanging out with the security guard all day. He was not in a classroom setting because he wouldn't was not functioning in a classroom setting. Yeah. So they didn't know what to do with him. So they just stuck him there and basically babysat him for the six hours he was in the classroom. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind me saying, um, your son was very social and charismatic, right? So that was that that's where he was good at, right? That was his strong suit. Not to say he wasn't smart also. Um, it's just like he was a very social person. Um, yes. And people are like, okay, if he's not in the classroom creating problems and he's not in crisis mode and yes. or being disruptive, then we're just gonna let them be, right? Um, and you can choose that battle every now and then, even at the therapeutic school, we'd be like, okay, we're lowering the expectations today because we just need a, a child to be safe, right? Um, but you you have to, you, and you have to have high expectations. You can't just say, oh yeah, this is just where this child is at. and we're never going to move them along. You have to continue to have those high expectations. Exactly. Uh, you know, I call it um, the, the push and the pull. Yeah. Right? We have to push them when we know we can push them. That's but right. We have to pull back when we know that they can't handle it. Yeah. And in the environment he was in, it was not working. They were not pushing him at all. And he wasn't learning anything. Um, but he was definitely very funny and charismatic and outgoing. Yeah. And everyone in the whole school and they loved yeah. him. But um, I didn't, I wanted to have some type of future for him and That's I didn't right. think that that was going to be working. So, yeah. um, what I like to also advise parents is in layman's terms, what I call it is you have to max out all your services on the IEP. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, go, on, go on to <laughs> yeah. with yeah. Explain okay. that what they do okay. when you say that. And you could correct me if I'm wrong. And No, um, I know what you mean, but yeah, I just we like, had, um We had a lawyer come in and, and speak about special ed, and we're going to bring him back, and he can clarify more. But basically, they have to hit certain markers in the IEP, and, and if they're not hitting them, 
you have to get them more supportive services. And then eventually you're going to run out of supportive services. So for my son, he needed a lot of social emotional support, as they call it, social work time. Mm-hmm. And I had requested that they do it two to three times a week. And the school was like, no way, we don't, we don't have the resources to do that. And I also requested that they take them out of the classroom if it was getting to be too overwhelming. And they were like, we can't do that either. So at some point I was like, well, we, we can't just let them sit in the principal's office all day or this, you know, and you just keep pushing the school like, this is what I want. This is what they need. And I also had his doctor who, who backed me up on that. And if they can't meet that bar, they have to find another place right. where they can meet. Right. The resources, the lack thereof, cannot drive the educational program. Right. And this is the world that it's like, well, well, that's just not what we do. And it's like, oh, but you can't say that. Like, <laughs> if this is what the child needs, this is what we believe the child needs to be successful and to be safe. Then that's what you need to put in that IEP. You can't say we don't because we can't. Um, and I've run into that in the world I'm in now where it's like social work services. We don't write that into IEPs. What? Like, <laughs> because it, it's resources and it's more, it's a, it's a, it's a newer thing. And it's like, if a child needs that, a child needs that. Right. And, and when you think about in a public school, it's interesting, Julia, you bring that up is like, social workers in public schools, oftentimes they're between two, three, four schools, right? They maybe are at one school once a week or one and a half days a week. And just not that level of like clinical support, if you will. Um, The social workers, you know, in public schools are maybe trying to do groups, um, rarely individual or that they are, it's it's brief. It's, you know, it's it's like a check-in. And oftentimes they're more there for resources for families, which is necessary as well. You know, that's really critical. Also diminish that. Also, I think that looking at, you know, this transition of kids that aren't in the therapeutic schooling yet, um, that are constantly singled out, you know, they're taken out of the classroom, they're, someone is, you know, sometimes they have these districts where someone's assigned to a kid in the classroom, Mm -hmm. and like a bodyguard? Yes, it it is. It's (laughs) a a special aid. Like a a one-on-one aid. A one-on-one aid, and a lot of these, a lot of school districts in the country have that set up if they don't have therapeutic schools or if they do too but that this is a part of the system and so all the kids see whatever grade it is that so and so has someone oh he has the person with them in other words it's labeling mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's just making you know, ostracizing can, them exactly yeah. and, and then and then also you know you picture those classes where it's so and so somebody's here to pull you out, you know, and the mm-hmm. whole kids all realize, yep. see this, and it's just, you know, can't be a good feeling. No. Have that no. be your school day and week. No, no not at all. And, and the flip side of that, um, you know, it spending now time in public schools in the last year, um, a lot of schools are just trying to put everyone in the gen ed setting, like to do full inclusion. And like, that's a lovely idea too. But not every student's able to do that, right? Yeah. Just like right. not every able student's That's able really to read at their grade level, right? Like they might be in fourth grade and you want them to be in a fourth grade reading group, but they don't know how to read at fourth grade level, right? So, right. Um, and so then in the schools that I've been working in, there's a, there's a good amount of behavior in kids leaving the classrooms. And it's like their behaviors are telling us, right, that this isn't working for them. Um, 
And, you know, inclusion is a, is a lovely idea, but it would mean largely a special ed teacher and a gen ed teacher in a classroom together. Or like in some states, I've learned they're requiring that their gen ed teachers also have SPED credentials so that, um, yeah, so you can think of on both sides of your brain when you're running that classroom and meeting everybody's needs. It seems but, a little overwhelming for the teacher. Yeah, and I'm sure tough yeah. to staff schools as it is, so... Yeah, in today's world, there's a teacher shortage. Right, and and speaking of speaking of the issues, so one of the points I want to touch upon is a behavioral intervention plan, which is another thing that no one brought up for many many years. And so, can you kind of give us description of what that is? And sure. So, actually, a child with special ed services or without special ed services can be ha have a behavior intervention plan. So. What comes before a behavior intervention plan is something that's called a functional behavioral assessment. So that's basically anybody who's working with that student, including the student themselves and the parent or guardian, completing surveys about what do we see about this child? When is it like you're thinking about the antecedents? What's happening before we see the behavior? What's happening afterwards? Um, and then from that information that the team gathers together to hypothesize why do we think this is happening with this child then they create the behavior intervention plan and the behavior intervention plan is to basically recognize like what are we seeing the child struggles with what are some like proactive skills or strategies we can put in place and skills we can build in the students to hopefully not get to that and how are we going to respond when the student does have does still then have the the behavioral you know, incidents that we are concerned about. But what really is important for parents and guardians to know is that a child does not need to have an IEP to have a behavior intervention plan. Most schools, well, ideally, schools are running what's called MTSS, so multi-tiered student services supports, whatever it is, and RTI, which is a more common term. And that is literally um, like three tiers of intervention. And that's for students that are gen ed students for the most part, right? So if a child is struggling and they're not yet in IEP services, um, the parent and guardian can ask, ask the school to do an FBA and put a behavior intervention plan in place. Some schools do like behavior contracts, which is nice too. It involves the students. Like what, like, what are you willing to, like, what do you, what do you want to work for? Like, what do we find our challenges are when, when we're feeling this way, we'll make these choices. Right. Um, and that involves the student and elevates their voice a little bit more, but those are some good proactive strategies that people can put in place. Um, even before a child is, has an IEP. But then when a child has an IEP, they don't necessarily always have an FBA and BIP. So to your point, Julie, they wouldn't have known necessarily about that. Um, and then, then the parent can still ask for that, right? And then that actually becomes part of the child's IEP. That behavior intervention plan is documented in the IEP and it's the, the team needs to follow it. And if it's not working, the team's obligated to come back together and say, this is what we've been trying. This is what's worked. This is what's not worked. What else can we try? Um, so it's one of the good reasons to have an IEP. It it makes it, I don't want to say it assures, but it tries some, some certainty that the, the team and the school is following what's in that plan to support that child. Um, I don't know if you have uh, an answer for this, but what, with, uh, you know, it's a national podcast. People are listening from cities big and small towns too. What would you suggest for the parent who's listening and all these, you know, you're talking about these wonderful resources and and so on, but they're living in one of these smaller towns that doesn't have therapeutic schools right there or close enough. 
and they're really struggling with their son or daughter um, that, you know, with a lot of things that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. what kind of what kind of steps can they take if their child is in, you know, a good elementary school or middle school or high school and they really see that there is a growing issue with behavior and learning and all of the above? Yeah. Well, every district should have somebody who's overseeing special education services. And that would be the person I feel like they should reach out to, unless there's a really a trusted person at the school. Sometimes it's a dean, right? So oftentimes deans are, you know, dealing with behaviors a little bit more. It, they could also go to their principals. But what I've learned is like, you know, I was kind of the anomaly. To, like I was a principal from a special ed background in a full sped setting. So for me, like, a principal should know everything about special education, but in the real world, that's not necessarily the case. They're they're running a school and concerned about all the other things. So the parent should go to the school. Maybe there's a social worker at the school um, or in the district. But like I said, every district should have somebody who's overseeing special education. Um, and it's funny you bring that up because I actually was just in conversation with someone in, in a more rural area in a state near here um, and talking about they actually need like so they need somebody in their classrooms coaching their, the teachers about how to manage and respond to behaviors, right? So even in small town areas, it doesn't mean these behaviors aren't happening or there's not awareness. It's literally pulling together the resources and then training people on, on how to work with the students and putting resources in place. So um, I would, yeah, I would always suggest that a parent advocate for their child. Um, and got, you're saying there's got to be someone that it's got to be someone and, and you know and maybe it's situational too you know it can make it can make the difference of a teacher right um on how and why a child may or might not be able to stay regulated or dysregulated in a classroom so you know sometimes a classroom change can happen we even had to do that at the therapeutic school right like we might place a child in a school and, and a classroom and it's not working doesn't mean that the teacher's not doing their best but it's, it could be the smallest of things that makes a difference for a child um sure so yeah but i would never say sit on your concerns no yeah, you're the important. parent and guardians the first best advocate for those for your, the student for the child Ricky, we all get toiled yeah <laughs> well, gosh, and someone, you know, but really, Julie, like you were a breath of fresh air when you came in oh. and just were so straightforward and, av and available to work with the work with the team and, I can and share I can and, and share. Right. Because some parents, I don't want to say they're in denial, but they sometimes don't even understand the complexity of what's going on with their child. Right. So um, for well, you I think to be shame and embarrassment, too. Right. Like, gosh, my kid is here. He's not he's not so ill. He's a little Ill or has a little bit of a problem and you know it'll it'll be okay yeah. yeah you know and that's about the acceptance part i i was very understanding of where my son was at and i knew that i just didn't want this whole illness to define his whole life and right. so whatever it took to get there i was going to make it work but again you have to have a team and i was fortunate enough that you guys were such a great team to be so respondent to me yeah and when i say team i i just want to clarify for our behind our door family that, you know, it wasn't, I could email you as the principal, I could email his teacher, I could email his social worker, and then you had, um, what were they called, assistants, the people that- Yeah, like the parapros, and then we had what, the support team in the hallway. Yeah. Once um, <laughs> been called crisis team, it's like, we need to rename them. <laughs> yes. But, but, but some of those yeah. people that were hanging out in the hallway were the most influential yes. people in my son's life. That's right. 
And when he was in crisis, those were the first people he would seek out. That's right. They are specifically trained in all processes of supporting kiddos. I call them kind of the catcher in the rye. It's like when the child's, when the child's left the classroom, like here they are. And those relationships are so important. Um, yeah, I would never diminish the work of that, that team um, because they they are the ones that they, they greet the kids in the morning and are working with them when they're escalated. And sometimes when things you know become really escalated, there's also the person maybe having to actually do a physical hold with that child, right? Um, but uh, they, so, yeah. you, just to clarify for for everyone, you can do physical restraint in therapeutic schools. How does how does that work? Yeah. Um, so at least uh, still in the state of Illinois, it's it's different everywhere, right? And last I know, you can still do physical restraint. So there's uh, there's different models out there, of course. And part of it is not just like, well, this is how you hold the child when they're escalated or unsafe. It's also teaching. Uh, the staff to be aware of what a child looks like when they're triggering and how to hopefully intervene on that crisis circle or crisis curve, if you will, so the child doesn't reach escalation and crisis state. Um, and that's, of course, what we're always trying to do, right, is kind of catch them early and redirect them and try to get them to, to avoid going into that state. Um, but staff are trained how to do physical holds, um, if need be. And that's usually to keep the child safe or others safe. Um, it's never, it's, it's not an easy process. It, most people who do holds will say it's very tiresome. It's, tr it's traumatizing for themselves, even as adults who might do it um, very more frequently than they want to. Um, but ironically, uh, I've also worked with students who almost cannot deescalate until they actually have that physical input of a hold. Um, yeah. I'm, there were a couple students at the school. They would they would provoke, and I don't mean this in a really like, but like they literally. It's like they knew if they stood there and kicked staff and spit on them and hit them or whatever that the the staff would go hands on with them. And it's almost like it's what made them feel comfortable. It would it would help them kind of process. I feel like the adrenaline, right? Because those kids are in crisis mode. They're in fight or flight mode, um, and uh, it also teaches you like when a child is at that escalated state. You, you stop using your verbal skills and trying to talk with them because just think about like when you're escalated and so angry, you become tongue-tied, right? Your cognitive abilities aren't even there to process. Like if you go in your worst day, you're so tongue-tied, just tell me what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's really, it's a, it's a kind of a comprehensive training on how to work with kids when they're in the crisis cycle. Um, Another and then you're, I'm sorry. Schools. Just a, it's such a, to have people that are trained in this. Yeah. And then you're also taught like to look at crisis as a learning opportunity, right? You don't, this doesn't happen in isolation because then once, once the crisis passes and the child's back to baseline, then there's an opportunity to talk about like what happened, what was going on in those moments, maybe what, what else could you have done? Could you have gotten an adult? Could you have walked away? Whatever the situation was. So we try to use it as a reflective process too, um, to try to make plans, uh, how we how we might be able to manage ourselves in a different way or make a different choice next time. Which you have rooms that children can go into. It used to be called the timeout room, or at least that's what my son called it. Yeah, that's what it used to be called. Okay. It used to be called it when I first started working there. <laughs> and we call them the time away rooms. Then we call them, time you away. know, separate space, like whatever. Then we call them a chill out room. Um, yeah, they're not isolation rooms. You can't hold, close the door and hold like the child in there. They're um, not locked up in there. They're not locked up. No, nope, they can't be locked up in there. Um, 
but it is, it is the space, right? Because when you think about, um, and golly, I always felt like the child ended up having to be held like out in the open space, right? Uh, where um, anybody could walk by and see him. That's why we would shut down the hallways when we had, uh, you know, an escalated situation going on just for the respect of the student in crisis. But um, those separate space rooms, yeah, are places kids could go. Um, we ended up putting padding on a lot of the walls because kids would hit and kick the walls. It's like, I don't need anyone breaking a foot or, or a hand. Like if they need to hit something, hit the padded wall, right? Um, but that is a space where, you know, anyone could be pulled into. I, as the principal, might have been pulled into or the social worker or one of the support staff members um, just to kind of sit there. And sometimes you would just be sitting on the floor with the, with the kiddo, you know, bouncing a ball against the wall, just talking about what was going on for them that day. Um, so, so well of, thought out, all of this, I mean, it really is, it's, it makes a difference, lifelong difference if the kids yeah. can start out like this. Yeah. You have a few years in a program that's so needed. Yeah. Well, I think the, the biggest lesson here is that they're not alone and they don't feel alone. And they know, even though their illness makes them say some terrible things and do some terrible things, that these adults in their lives are going to continue to be there and support them. And yeah. so, and, That's and, the bigger message. Yeah, and the same with the parents. I think it's so good for the parents. You know, you say you involve the family. It's so good for the parents to know they're not alone with having these issues at home and at school and that they're not bad parents. You know, right. you know go through all that judgment and, and um, the whole, the issues in a regular school that it's just wonderful, I'm sure, for parents to be involved and have the support of each other. Yeah. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.